Well, good morning, Mercy House. My name is Garrett Postma. I'm one of the elders here. Um, and it's kind of, you know, if I'm going to use a microphone, it's kind of nice following JD. It's already set up for me, nice and high. I like that. Don't need to adjust it. Normally, we've got the, the walking around mic, but there were some, uh, some issues earlier. So some, some adjustments on the fly here. For example, I need to speak into the mic. There we go. All right, before we go any further, I just want to take a moment to pray. I know we've prayed a lot already, but uh, I'd like to kick the sermon off a little prayer before we get into it. Heavenly Father, I would lift this time before you and this sermon before you. I would ask that you would be glorified in this message. And as your word says, the gospel does not go out and return to you void. So I just ask that the Holy Spirit would be moving here among us this morning. Uh, I would pray that if anything I prepared is not from you, that I would skip over it. And that if I should say something I haven't prepared, that you would bring it to my mind. And ultimately, God, just that your will would be done in our hearts this morning. And in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today we're going to be continuing our winter sermon series in James. Uh, if this is your first time joining us or your first time joining us for a while, uh, we'll go over a little background information. James was the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, you can check in your Bibles, Matthew 13, 55, for a reference. He was also the leader of the Jerusalem church. We see that in Acts 15. If you have the ESV study Bible, you can read in the introduction to James about how some people dispute his authorship on the grounds that his Greek is too good, he never calls himself Jesus' brother. And since the topics deal with Pauline issues of faith, works, justification, and liberty, well, then James couldn't be the author because this book would have to have been written after he died. However, all that being said, there's no good reason to believe that James did not write this book. There's a lot of crossover between Jews and Gentiles, so it's perfectly reasonable to think that James could have learned Greek and learned it well. Additionally, James is addressing issues in his own church as opposed to reacting to Paul. James's audience was Jewish Christians outside of Palestine, and we know this from James 1.1, where it says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Steve Harrington, in his introduction last week, did a great overview of the background on James, so if you haven't heard his sermon, I would encourage you to do so. A couple weeks ago, Tommy Moore, he preached on James 1, verses 2 through 4, on trials, and as a collective group, uh, we talked about the human response to trials and the uniquely Christian approach to remaining steadfast and looking to Jesus who suffered the ultimate trial on the cross. Now, if any of you are here for the first time thinking you're not ready for a group discussion, don't worry, we held that sermon on Zoom. And uh, for time constraints, I had to cut our group discussion portion this morning. Last week, we heard Steve preach on James 1, 19 through 26. He exhorted us to be doers of the word and not simply hearers of the word. Steve also talked about having right religion and not having worthless religion. All this brings us to today's passage, James 2, 14 through 26, where we will be building on what Steve started last week. So if you've been attending Mercy House over the past couple of years, you've heard us talk a lot about how the local church body, and specifically Mercy House, is a family. And as a family, we all have different roles to play in both the church and our community. You have heard us talk about how as believers we are called to be different. That in response to our faith, in response to following Jesus, we are called to live and act differently. 
Jesus himself in John 8, 11 told people to go and sin no more. So all that being said, I don't think I need to convince you that our lives after we start to follow Christ should look different than they did before. Uh, one analogy I thought of while preparing this sermon, and it kind of randomly popped into my mind, uh, was the transformation of a man named Joe Cross. Now, Joe Cross put out a documentary way back in 2010, which was titled Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead. And from what I recall of this, Joe was already a successful businessman. Um, however, he had a bunch of health issues, and according to him, a lot of these he felt like were brought on by the diet he had. He ate a lot of processed foods, he ate lots of fast foods, um, and he was incredibly unhealthy, and eventually he reached a breaking point where he said he realized he was going to die, or at the very least he felt like he was, you know, on the verge of death due to his diet and his health issues and concerns. So he then decides to make a radical change in his life. And he goes on this, in my mind, kind of crazy 60-day juice fast, and, uh, that ra and radically changes the way he lives. He starts exercising, and this results in his health, you know, dramatically improving. And, you know, the point I'm trying to get at is that this man either realized he was going to die or at the very least felt like he was good as dead, and then he undergoes a radical transformation. We can debate the merits of a 60-day juice fast, but the point is he felt as though he was dead and he made a change and lived differently. This is a bit like becoming a Christian. As Ephesians 4, 19 through 24 states, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. As we can see, we are called as Christians to put off our old nature and become a new self in the likeness of God. As such, our lives before and after becoming a Christian should not be the same. If you are, for an extreme example, a professional thief who becomes a Christian, well, in that case, you should not need convincing that you now also need a career change. And if you do need convincing, the seventh commandment is you shall not steal. In response to following Jesus, you should be looking for a new career. Romans 6, verses 1 and 2 give us further instruction on how we should live once we become a follower of Christ. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul is clearly stating that as Christians, now that we have been made new, we should not be living lives full of blatant or unrepentant sin. For how can we with our new nature? Now, the reason for these life changes is because you, when you become a Christian, have literally been made a new creation in Christ. Something changes in a literal sense and in a spiritual sense. Uh, one analogy for this transformation is a marriage. When you get married, there are certain expectations and behavior that change from when you were single. Some brief examples, you're expected to be faithful to your husband or wife. You are to care for them. You need to take their thoughts and feelings into account when making decisions. You share your resources, etc., etc. 
However, say you're not married, but you're in a relationship. Well, in that relationship, you can act like you're married. You can be faithful. You can share resources. You can take care of one another. You can even be living together. You might even do these things better than a married couple. However, just doing those things does not make you married. In Romans, Paul is tackling the issue of people who lived like Christians but did not experience salvation. They were acting married without getting married. James is tackling the other side, those who profess faith while living no different from those around them. To use the marriage example, James is talking to people who are married but acting like they are still single. In the passage we have today, James is going to take this concept that we need to act like Christians to the next level. See James 2, 14 through 17, which states, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith without works is dead, and dead faith cannot save. Honestly, this is a difficult thing to hear. It is difficult for me to hear, but it is also scripture. In this first section, the analogy James is using to illustrate this point is, uh, is a poorly clothed and hungry brother or sister in Christ who has a dire need. This person doesn't have food for the day. They are literally starving. In addition to starving, they don't appear to have proper clothing. If a Christian's response to that brother or sister is, go peace, be warmed and filled, I mean, that response is basically the same as saying, well, you have a great day. You, you should probably try to eat something. You know what, maybe tomorrow it's going to be 70 degrees out, sunny. I mean, it is New England after all. Who knows? It could happen. I mean, Mercy House, what, what good is that kind of response? Two weeks ago, the reason for our Zoom service was because Tommy was sick with COVID. Now, if Tommy's whole family is sick, say they're all stuck in bed, they've run out of food, and Tommy reaches out to me and he's like, hey man, we're out of food, we're too sick to make it to the grocery store, is there any way you could bring us some food? I know we've got COVID, but man, you could just like leave it on the steps or something, like we've, we've got a serious need here. In that situation, if my sponsor is like, oh man, Tommy, that, that's rough. I mean, yeah, hopefully somebody brings you some food. And, you know, I hear that if you drink, you know, two glasses of water quickly from the opposite rim, that actually cures COVID. So at any rate, I hope you have a good day and hashtag thoughts and prayers, brother. I mean, what, what kind of good is a response like that? That doesn't help the situation. That doesn't help Tommy. That doesn't help his family in need. You know, so James is telling us in this passage, one, we need to take care of our brothers and sisters in Christ. In the ridiculous example I kind of set up there, um, you know, if Tommy's asking for food, if they're suck, if stuck in bed and they're out of food, my response should be, of course, what, what do you guys like to eat? We'll make you guys a few meals to get through this. I mean, it's 2022. If I was feeling lazy, I could outsource to DoorDash if I really wanted to. You know, there, there are ways to take care of our brothers and sisters, and we are called to do that. 
You could say that as a functioning human, you should take care of your fellow man. And yes, taking care of your friends and neighbors is generally accepted as something that people should do. And I would say that that is correct. You should want to help those less fortunate than yourself as a productive member of society. However, and this is crucial here, the, the second thing James is saying in this passage is that if you do not care for a starving brother or sister, then your faith is dead. And dead faith cannot save you. Literally, you are not saved if you do not care for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And extrapolated further, if you claim to be a Christian but don't have works to back it up, you are not saved. After all, as James says, faith without works is dead. Now at this point, I'm sure there's someone listening to this that is saying to themselves, or possibly even their neighbor, is, is Garrett preaching a workspace salvation message? I think it's time we found a new church. To any of you thinking that, I, I do hear you, and we're going to deal with that in a bit, so please bear with me and don't walk out, or, or at least not quite yet. James continues in 18 through 21, but someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? In this passage, James is continuing his conversation from the first section. The person he is now talking to is someone who is trying to separate faith from deeds. For example, you know, some people, they're just good at feeding the poor and hungry. Some people aren't. People have different giftings. People are just different. Maybe this theoretical person heard half of one of Paul's sermons there saying something like, it's all grace, man. I can do what I want to do. But James is telling us that is not possible. As a commentator puts it, works, deeds, and actions are not optional for those who have faith. They are inevitable. Your faith is non-existent if there are no deeds. Okay, I now think it's time to start making some distinctions here with regard to salvation. Your acts of mercy towards the poor or to a brother or sister in Christ, that does not save you, nor is that what James is ultimately teaching. For example, you can see James chapter 2, verse 5, which happened a little bit earlier in the book. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? In the same way, simply having faith does not save you. Well, Garrett, what about Romans 10.9? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, gee, that's a good point, and I appreciate you bringing that up. James is not saying that you are not saved by faith. Rather, his argument is that true saving faith will produce good works. Simply having faith is not enough. As James rightly points out, even the demons believe in God and Jesus, yet they are not saved. We're going to take a, a small pause here. Uh, one of the things I'm concerned about is confusing people with this sermon. Uh, when I was in high school, I heard a sermon also on this passage. I think it was titled, Something to the Effect of Faith Like a Demon. And honestly, my takeaway from that sermon was fear for my salvation. 
And maybe that was a youthful thing. Maybe it was actually a good thing. I don't know. And I don't know if that was the intended takeaway. I mean, it was memorable enough that I still remember it <laughs> and the fear it caused. My fear centered around, well, how do I know if I have saving faith and not faith like a demon? And I think the answer to that question will help all of us make more sense of this passage. A demon has faith in that they are aware that Jesus exists and that he died for you and for me. They know that this is a fact, but that is it. For example, if I am lactose intolerant, which I'm not, but say I am, and I know that consuming lactose will result in an unpleasant result, and then I go ahead and eat a gallon of ice cream, well, I'm going to have a bad time. I know what I need to do to avoid having an unpleasant experience, avoid lactose, take lactate, etc. but I did not do that. I had knowledge of what was required, but I did not follow through with actions. In a similar way, that is what James is trying to outline in this verse. He's pointing out that demons believe that God exists, yet they do not have saving faith. James is also referencing Jesus' ultimate victory over Satan at the back end of the verse when he references those demons shuddering. James is exhorting those who hear his letter to have saving faith rather than intellectual knowledge or cultural Christianity. This is also where we're going to make the connection with Paul and Romans and the faith alone camp and James's your works save you camp. Paul and James are addressing two different issues within the church. In Romans, Paul's writing to an audience who believe that they have to have works or that Gentiles need to follow the law in order to be saved. To Paul's audience, it was a gospel plus message. Faith alone was not going to save you. You needed to do things. This is a false gospel and part of what Paul is addressing in the book of Romans. James has a different problem. James is writing to an audience of cultural Christianity. Those that claim to be Christians, yet live no differently than those around them. You would not be able to tell that these people were Christians. By all accounts, they lived as the non-believers around them. Yet, they professed to claim Christ. This is also a false gospel. You cannot simply use your knowledge that Jesus came and died for you as a means for salvation. While Paul is writing to tell his audience that, yes, your works are nice, but you also need to have faith, James is saying, hey, that's great you claim to know Jesus, but guess what? The demons also know that Jesus is real too. You need to have saving faith, but you also need to live like a follower of Christ. One analogy for bearing fruit and living like a follower of Christ that Tommy Moore shared with me is, is that of an apple tree. A healthy apple tree will bear good fruit in the same way that a genuine believer will bear good fruit in the form of the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit and the works of a genuine believer are because God has changed the nature of their hearts. It is not from them, it is because it is now their nature that they are believers that they are going to bear fruit. I also want to encourage you all this morning. Although we have been changed and given a new nature in Christ, we are still sinners living in the flesh. We will continue to sin and make mistakes. I certainly still sin and I make plenty of mistakes. But this is where the grace of God covers us. This is where we acknowledge that the good works in us come from God changing our hearts and our natures. 
The mark of a true believer is that they are bearing fruit. It can and likely will be a struggle. It is something I personally am convicted by, but if you are bearing fruit, then you are a true believer. This is where we can reconcile James and Paul as saying the same thing. You are saved by faith alone through Christ alone. Works alone will not save you. Similarly, just being a good person will not save you. Gee, Garrett, this sermon has sounded an awful lot like a gospel plus works message this morning. Well, it is not. See verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. As described earlier, the theoretical someone is a person who is trying to break up faith and works. James refutes this by saying that you will know his faith by his works. Mercy House, I believe that this is the key. As Christians, we are called to be different and to live differently. Our lives should look different from those around us, and James is telling us that he will show this theoretical person that he has faith by the way that he lives and the works that he does. This is not a gospel plus message. Nowhere is it mentioned that these works will grant additional or special favor with God. Nowhere does he say that these works are the actual means of his salvation. Rather, James is saying that he will perform good works as an outpouring of the saving faith that he has, and in response to Jesus' sacrifice and the undeserved favor, which is also known as grace, that has been poured out for him. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 20, verse 11, uh, it states, Even a child makes himself known by his acts, by whether his conduct is pure and upright. Another way we might typically summarize this verse is by saying that actions speak louder than words, or by your actions you are known. Simply put, you can tell a lot about a person by the way they act. Mercy House, if you are a Christian, if you believe that Jesus died on the cross to save you, that you are a sinner who deserves death, and that apart from God's free gift of salvation via Jesus' death on the cross for your sins and his resurrection from the dead three days later, if that is what you believe, then in response to that gift, we ought to live our lives differently. We ought to be producing good fruit. We ought to be living well for Jesus and not for ourselves. Not that living well and doing good will save us, but because as followers of Jesus, we should emulate him. Now, if you remain unconvinced of this, let's take a look at some more scripture that backs this up. Matthew 25, 31 through 40 states, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, 
or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The vision we see before us in these verses is one of God judging the nations. We see that those on the right are blessed by God, and they get to inherit the kingdom which was prepared before the foundation of the world. And those verses are full of grace. The sheep are blessed and inherit the kingdom which God had created for them. This is a mercy of God and not something that the sheep deserve. In response to this grace, the sheep are transformed. The passage continues with Jesus talking about how the sheep have taken care of him, King Jesus. The sheep replied questioning when they did all these things. Jesus' response is that when they did these things to the least of these, it was as though they did it to Jesus. Jesus himself likens caring for people, and specifically those Christians who are in need, to caring for him. And a quick note on how we know that it's referencing Christians specifically and not all people. Well, firstly, I would say that we should try to help out all people who are struggling, and that doing so is also biblical. But specifically, in this passage, the reference of brother is likely a reference to the disciples, from which we are extrapolating to specific care for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Mercy House, when caring for one another is likened to caring for Jesus himself, well, how can we not perform good works? How then can we not take care of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Another commentator states it well when they say, and I quote, the overflow of the Christian's heart is to serve, and the Christian's external acts of mercy are clear evidence of the internal mercy of God in his heart. This mercy from God is then juxtaposed in Matthew uh, with the following verses, verses 41 through 46, which state, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The sheep and the goats in Matthew serve as an apt analogy to the point James is trying to make. The sheep who care for the least of these are not saved by their actions. King Jesus chooses to bless them, and as an outpouring of their changed hearts, they care for Jesus by caring for one another, by caring for the least of these. The goats are not blessed, their hearts are not changed, and they are subsequently condemned. This is also re relevant, and not just for the last judgment in that passage, but for the here and the now. And, uh, and I ask myself these questions also. You know, what, what evidence have you seen in your life over the past six months? What about the past year? What about the past three years? As born-again Christians, we should see the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Now, 
important distinction. This should not be out of pride. Look what I did. But the response should be, wow, that is grace. Look what God has done in my life and how he has been working in me. Again, I want to hammer home the point that the works of caring for one another do not save the sheep. The sheep aren't helping one another because they feel guilty or because they want to avoid condemnation. Rather, it is because of the transformation of their hearts from their saving faith that they cannot help but care for one another. I think Charles Spurgeon says it well in the final separation when he says, and I quote, The saints fed the hungry and clothed the naked because it gave them much pleasure to do so. They did it because they could not help doing it. Their new nature impelled them to it. They did it because it was their delight to do good. They did good for Christ's sake because it was the sweetest thing in the world to do anything for Jesus. Again, and I don't think I can say this enough, their new nature brought on by saving faith makes it so they cannot help but do good for Jesus. Mercy House, by your actions, you are known. Collectively as a church body, by our actions, we are known. Relatively early in my tenure as an elder here, Robert, the lead pastor at the time, was contacted by someone in a difficult circumstance. And yes, I'm being purposely vague uh, because this particular situation had the potential for some dire consequences. There was an individual who was not associated with our church in, in any way, and he reached out to Robert for help. In a, in a dire situation. And Robert helped this person as, as best he could. And as an elder team, we prayed over the situation. And now I bring up this story simply because Robert asked the individual, why me? Why of all the people and the places? It was, why me and, and why did you contact this church? And the response from this individual was, because they'd heard good things about Mercy House. Mercy House, by your collective actions, by your collective works, someone in need reached out to our pastor and our church in a moment of need. And that is amazing, and that is a picture of the gospel being acted out, and praise be to God for that. I'll say this again. By your actions, you are known. What do your actions say about you? Mercy House, the world is watching us as individuals, as Christians, as a church here in Amherst. What do your actions say about you? And I don't bring this up because I am in any way perfect or because I have all the answers. I mean, this is honestly an area I can grow in as well, and this is convicting to myself personally. But as far as actionable items from this sermon, one takeaway I would like all of us to have, and I'm certainly including myself in this, is to examine our actions and our lives and compare them to Jesus but also to view them through the lens of what does my life look like to the collective world? What does my life look like to Jesus? And what are the motivations for my actions? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 state, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God saves us. However, we have a responsibility to also do what God has called us to do. 
Once again, and for emphasis this time, this is not a Gospel Plus message. We are saved through faith, but because of the transformation of our hearts and the renewal of our minds, we should want to perform good works as an outpouring of our love for God. We can see a perfect picture of what caring for the least of these looks like in Jesus. When Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross for you and for me, he was caring for us for all eternity. This wasn't something that Jesus had to do. Rather, it was something that he wanted to do and willingly did solely for our benefit. To remember Jesus' sacrifice, we here at Mercy House take communion on a weekly basis. Uh, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and thank you for your saving work on the cross. Thank you that you have saved us, Father. And just I would I pray that you would be working in all of our hearts and minds now, God, that we would respond to that free gift of grace on the way you have called us to God. I pray that the fruit of the Spirit would be evident in the lives of Christians here. And I would just thank you for this church body, the brothers and sisters of Christ here, and, and how that they have ministered to me on a personal level and how we've taken care of one another on a corporate level, God. I would thank you for this church body now. And in Jesus' name, amen.